Good morning, church. Uh, it's a joy to gather with you all today. Um, my name is Joel McCarty. As he said, I'm the pastor of Missional Life, uh, currently at Summit Crossing Community Church in Athens, Alabama, which is Limestone County. Um, and so we are currently there, and as he mentioned, we are working towards planting a church in the Decatur, Alabama area. It's about 30 minutes south of where we currently live, and so we're on that trajectory and that timeline. Um, we'll be moving there next summer and just working towards that. So I, I want to thank Luke, first of all, uh, for allowing me to come in and fill the pulpit for a Sunday, and then thank all of you who have never met me, um, but to allow me to come in and spend just a little bit of time here with you this morning. I love the broader kingdom church and being able to see that the same Jesus-loving, gospel-centered churches are being planted um, here in Knoxville, in Athens, Alabama, in Decatur, Alabama, and to the ends of the earth. And so you guys are a part of something much bigger than just yourselves right here, right now. So thank you for allowing us to be a part of your journey uh, just here this morning. I know this summer um, you had preachers coming in and talking about kind of their life message. And Luke kind of said, what would you preach? You know, if you could get your kids to understand one thing and have like one message to preach to them, what would you preach? And so as I was processing this, there's one story from the scriptures that stood out to me. It's, it's from Mark chapter 5. That's where we're going to be today. If you wanted to make your way there, either on your phones or in your Bible, um, we're going to be in Mark chapter 5. See, for me, I'm, I'm someone that has always struggled somewhat with doubt. I'm someone who asks a lot of questions. I'm someone who typically, if you tell me something, like, I want to know why, right? And those of you that have kids understand that as well, right? That's how I am. And so in this journey of the Christian life, one of the cries of my heart has been, I believe, but help my unbelief, to the point I literally have it tattooed on my body, help my unbelief. Because as we go on this journey, there's often times where we know the right things, we know the doctrine, we know what the Word says, but reality doesn't seem to line up, and so we're struggling with our faith. And so for me, the thing, the good news of the gospel is that it's not about simply how much faith I have. It's not simply how consistent my faith is or how much I can hold on to God, but rather the fact that He's holding on to me. And it's about the object of my faith and the one in whom my faith is in, not the amount of my faith. It's about the consistency of Jesus, not about my consistency. See, for us to have faith or courage in the face of fear and in the face of the unknown, we must first have a deep abiding trust in the person of King Jesus. See, I can stand up here and preach a message to you and say, have faith. But what I'd rather do is show you the beauty and the majesty and the trustworthiness of Jesus so that you leave today with a deep-rooted faith that is in the person and work of Jesus. It's not about just white-knuckling it and trying harder and just hanging on enough, but rather beholding the beauty of Jesus, our King, and saying He is the one that is trustworthy enough. See, you can have a lot of faith, but if it's faith in the wrong thing, you're not courageous. You're stupid. Right, like there's a fine line between courage and stupidity, right? Like I can give you an example. So my daughter, Everly, so we have um, my wife, Christy's here with us today, and then we have four young kids, six, four, two, and newborn, so we're in that crazy stage of life. Caden is my son, and then we have three girls, we're really worried when they're teenagers, we're like praying now for that time. Um, we hear that's crazy. We have some friends that have three teenage girls that close in age, and they fight a lot, so... 
Um, yeah, so, but Everly, Scarlett, and Maddie ran. So Everly's my four-year-old. She is fierce. She's stubborn. Um, we're praying it's, like, going to be used for the kingdom and not used to, like, destroy the world. Like, that's what we're praying for. One or the other is going to happen. And so with her, she's just kind of her own person. She's her own individual. She does what she wants to do. And so for, for her, if she wants a snack at the top of the pantry, she's going to find a way to get it. Right? And she's very, she has a lot of faith in her own athletic ability and balance, which I don't have as much faith in because I've seen it not pan out. She has a lot of faith in this like flimsy Paw Patrol table that she'll set up. And then she'll take one of the flimsy chairs and set it on top of that and start climbing to the top of it. And she's got a lot of faith, right? A lot of faith in herself, a lot of faith in this table. But, but we know like very well what could happen. And we'll even tell her that's not going to work out very well. It'll be fine. I got it. I got it. I won't fall. I promise. And the amount of faith is amazing, but you know what? We don't look at that and say, man, she's courageous. We say, that's stupid, because we know that the object of her faith isn't that trustworthy. And so it's not about the amount of our faith as much as it is the object of our faith. If the thing we are trusting in is not trustworthy or worthy of our trust, we're being foolish. And so as we move into our text today and into our time of preaching, I want us to move past the idea that we should have faith and follow Jesus so it pans out and works out for ourselves and maybe so we have a better life here and now or maybe because our parents told us to, but rather because the person of Jesus is worthy of your faith and worthy of your trust. He will not call us to anything that is not ultimately for our good and for his glory, even if we don't always see it. We're going to start in Mark chapter 5, verse 21, and we're going to look at actually two different characters in this story that both exercise great faith. They're two totally different characters, and Mark is talking about them in the same passage on purpose. And actually what they do, if Jesus isn't worthy of their faith or their trust, this would have been considered foolish and reckless. So my hope for us today is that we leave here encouraged and empowered, trusting that Jesus is king over saving us, but not only saving us from something, but equipping us for, saving us for his mission as we trust him alone and follow in obedience. So I want to read the passage, Mark chapter 5, verse 21. Um, I'm just going to read the story for us. We're going to go through verse 43. And if, if you don't have a Bible, that's fine. Just sit and listen to it as a story. Like, I want you to get, immerse yourself in the story, and then we'll kind of work through it. So Mark chapter 5. Verse 21, and when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And, and Jesus went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? 
His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear. Only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately, the girl got up and began walking. For she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. I have one main goal for you today during our time. It is to trust that King Jesus is sufficient for salvation and mission and to respond in faithful obedience. When we leave today, I want you to trust that King Jesus is sufficient for our salvation and for the mission he's called us to and for us to respond in faithful obedience. So we're going to walk through the story and then we're going to look at how it applies to us as individuals, what it means about God in Christ Jesus and then what it means for us collectively as his church. And so our story began today, as we saw, with Jesus arriving on the shore and there's this massive crowd about him and there's this character that Mark introduces to us. His name is Jairus. We're told, Mark points out, that he's a religious leader. Now, this would have meant a couple things. It would have meant that he had status in this community. Religious leaders didn't just have power over religion. They also affected politics. They were upstanding, and people knew who they were. And if you're reading straight through the book of Mark, just as a story, as it was meant to be read, there's one thing you would know about religious leaders at this point. They hated Jesus. They didn't like the kingdom that he was bringing. They did not like the fact that he took their religion and flipped it on its head and told people that outcasts were welcome into his kingdom. They didn't like this. This came into conflict with their own little kingdom they were building. But something's different about Jairus. This is the first time in Mark we see that a religious leader comes up and isn't opposed to Jesus. And he comes to Jesus in humility because something's happened to him. His little girl is sick. And so he is at this moment desperate. I mean, you understand if you have kids, like, and they're sick, you just have this heart-wrenching thing that you just want to do something to fix it. And this isn't just an ordinary sickness. This is something where he says, my little daughter is at the point of death. She's dying. And we don't know what to do. And he throws himself down at Jesus' feet. This would have been shocking. A dignified leader in the community did not do this. To have that kind of humility, people were normally coming to throw themselves at his feet, but Jairus throws himself at the feet of this man, Jesus. In desperation, Jairus in this moment could care nothing about his status, 
He could care nothing about what people thought about him, how undignified he might look, how it might affect his reputation with the other religious leaders that were opposed to Jesus. All he knew in this moment, all that was out the window, was that he was hurting and he was in need of a savior. See, all of Jairus' religious training, all of the passages he had memorized in the Torah as a young kid, this entire religious system, the rules he had followed, all the influence he had in this moment, it meant absolutely nothing because all those things had no power to make sick things whole. But Jairus had got news about this man, a, a man, a person, not a new religious system, not a new law book, but a person, and some had called him the Messiah, the chosen one. So he doesn't know how this is going to pan out, but in desperation, with everything to lose, he throws himself at the feet of this man and asks him to come make his daughter whole. Implores, begs him, please come, Jesus. He's exercising faith in this man. And verse 24 tells us that Jesus went along with the man. So they go on the way to Jairus' house. You can imagine the crowd following along, right? They're kind of excited. They've heard about this man healing people. We're going to get to see it up close and personal. So we have this crowd just kind of, you know, this celebrity Jesus, he's gotten some reputation at this point. So they're following along. Jairus maybe is a little nervous, like, how's this going to pan out? Like, I took my chance. This might affect, you know, my standing in the community. And in the midst of this story, Mark just stops and inserts another story. Mark does this a lot in his gospel, where he'll sandwich two stories, like a story around a story in the middle. And so we're told about this woman. We don't get her name. Um, Unlike Jairus, she doesn't have standing in the community. She's actually an outcast. And she has this discharge of blood. Mark's pretty graphic. And he says in Mark 5, 25, he says, there was this woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. This is a long time. And had suffered, literally had been tortured much under many physicians. And it's been all that she had. It was no better, but rather grew worse. So this woman's had this issue for 12 years. Nothing's made her better. She's went to doctors. Most likely these were quack doctors who were just taking advantage of her. She's putting her faith in these doctors and her money and everything she's got. And all she's doing is being taken advantage of and getting worse and worse and worse. We also need to understand that this would have affected this woman much more than just physically. That was a piece of it. But this affected this woman holistically. See, because of the way the system was, she wasn't even supposed to be allowed inside the city gate. She had a flow of blood. She was considered unclean. This would have kept her outside of the religious system. This would have caused her to have been viewed as disgusting and as an outcast. She also would have been seen as unfit for marriage, which means she wouldn't have been able to have children in this society. Unfortunately, that's where most women got their value. She was cut off from the broader community. She was the one that when you saw her, you said, oh, don't look. I don't want to catch her in the eye because I don't want to have to deal with that. Keep her away from the kids. You walk on the other side of the street when you see this person. She literally has been tortured for years. But just like Jairus, she heard the rumors about a man, about this Messiah. It wasn't another quack doctor, not another supposed cure, but a person. And so with nothing to lose, what does she do? She says in Mark 5, 28, if I just touch even his garments, I'll be made well. See, unlike Jairus, she doesn't have the cultural status or the privilege to walk up face to face to Jesus and have a meeting. 
She knows that. She's not stupid. So she thinks, look, if I can just sneak into the city where I'm not even supposed to be, if I can just get close enough to just reach out and, and touch his garments, maybe it'll work. I'm going to exercise this faith, reach out, touch his garments, and then I'll just go back to where I came from and see what happens. Now, why would she say this about touching his garment? We, we know the story, so it doesn't sound weird to us. But if you're reading it for the first time, it might sound weird. So a little bit of context from Malachi chapter 4. If we go back to the Old Testament, in Malachi chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, there's this prophecy that's given. This is significant. It's the last time we hear about this prophecy of the Messiah from the Old Testament. And it says there, Mark 4, 1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubbled. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. So this day of the Lord was something they were looking forward to when God would set up his rule and his kingdom. And then it goes on in verse 2, and it says, But for you who fear my name, for those who are my people, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. A couple things, this word son of righteousness was a moniker that everyone understood as the coming Messiah. And this word wings here is often in the Old Testament translated corners. And so in the Hebrew language, it was often seen as wings of a garment or corners or hems of a garment. And there had been this common understanding that even this woman would have heard that whoever was the Messiah would be so powerful and so great that even in the fringes of his garments, he would have healing there in his wings. And that those that experience that healing, I love this poetic imagery, will go out leaping like calves from the stall. Thinking of a newborn calf. Loose to run free, maybe stumbling, but excited because they're experiencing this newfound freedom. And so she comes up behind this man, face hidden, trying to hide herself, and with great faith, she touches him. And the text tells us immediately she knows that she's been healed, that the prophecy was true. That this son of righteousness did have healing in his wings, and she begins to maybe grasp that there's something bigger going on. And so she gets her healing, but here's the thing. She doesn't want to stay there. She knows she could be in trouble if she's caught, and so she has a mind to silently slip back into the anonymity of the crowd and start to figure out what this means for her life now. She's got her healing. But here's the thing about Jesus. He's got other plans. He's got much more in mind than just her physical healing. He wants to deal with everything this woman is facing, not just one piece of it. And so you can imagine the scene at this point. The crowd has no idea this has happened. Right? We only know this because Mark has told us in the story. At this point, only woman, the woman and Jesus know that something has happened here. And so they're walking. You can imagine the crowd. Jesus stops and he says, who touched my garments? His disciples are like, uh, a lot of people are touching your garments. This is a big crowd. And you can imagine the crowd trying to figure out what's, what's happening, what's going on. But Jesus knows that this touch is different. This was a touch of faith. And so he looks around. And can you imagine yourself with this woman? This isn't what she wanted. She just wanted some healing. She didn't want this giant crowd who had despised her her whole life, who had seen her as unfit to know that she was there. I mean, she was healed, but her fear overrides her excitement. She wasn't supposed to be touching anyone. Because under the old covenant, if unclean touched clean, clean became unclean. She wasn't supposed to touch anyone, let alone a rabbi or a religious leader, a teacher. And so in verse 33, we're told the woman 
knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. All she knows at this point is that she's been healed. And so she says, even in the midst of my fear and in the midst of my trembling, I know that there's something about this man. And if he asks me a question, I'm going to have enough faith to answer. And she tells the whole truth. And so in spite of this brokenness, she courageously throws herself on the mercy of this man, Jesus, not knowing what is going to happen. She operates on the little faith she has. Can you imagine the crowd in this moment? The disgust from them as she reveals who she is, and that she had this flow of blood that made her unclean. They begin to back away from her, looking at her in disgust, thinking, I wonder if she touched me. Uh, gross, like backing away. But then we see one man, Jesus, who's not backing away. He begins to move toward her. The entire crowd is watching Everyone listens to what Jesus is going to have to say because this woman has touched him. He is now supposed to be considered unclean, but with Jesus, this is no old covenant. He's greater than the law. And so with Jesus, when clean touches unclean, clean doesn't become unclean. Unclean becomes clean. And he wants to deal with every part of her. And so he looks at her in Mark 5.34 with everybody listening to what he's going to say. And the first word he says to her is, daughter. Daughter, your faith has made you whole or well. Go in peace and be healed. The first word he speaks to her is a word of massive dignity and honor and respect. He calls her daughter. Jesus in this moment is making a huge public display of the way the kingdom operates. That when everyone else sees hopeless, when everyone else sees outcast, when everyone else sees broken and unclean, Jesus sees family. Not just servant, but, but daughter, a place of honor and privilege and a place that affords an inheritance in the kingdom. When the great physician comes on the scene, he saves completely. He deals with sin and brokenness and all the effects of it. He tells her, your face made you well. Go in peace. This woman had not experienced shalom or peace, which is just wholeness, things being in their proper place. She's not experienced this for 12 years. And he says, because I've healed you, go in peace. That's what this king does. There truly is healing in the wings of this son of righteousness, and it's better than this woman could have ever dreamed. If you're coming to Jesus to just get your problems fixed, he's going to do that, maybe not in this life, at least in the next, but he's doing so much more. You're not asking too much. You're asking too little. Can you imagine this, this woman? 12 years of this torturing. The crowd moves on. They finally go their way. She turns around and begins to head back home, maybe gets around the corner, makes sure no one can see her, and just starts skipping down the path like a little girl in her newfound freedom. Or maybe we could say like a newborn calf, loose from its stall to experience life abundant. This woman's healed and is called daughter of God. We've gotten into this story, but we forgot about Jairus. Jairus is experiencing all this going on, sitting here nervously thinking, my daughter's at the point of death, what's going on? And while Jesus is still speaking to this woman, we're told that people come from Jairus' house and say, Jairus, I'm sorry, 
Your daughter's dead. Don't, don't bother the teacher any further. It's too late. I mean, Jairus had to be asking a lot of questions. He had to be filled with a lot of doubt. Like, why would you deal with this woman who's, who's had this issue for 12 years? What's another 30 minutes? What's another day for her to deal with this? Like, my daughter's dying and now is dead. He's told not to bother the teacher anymore. His situation has become hopeless. I mean, we've seen this teacher heal sickness. Jairus even got to experience it up close in person. But death, that's a different story. Death is final. There's no coming back from death. Death is complete. Death is undefeated. Or is it? See, Jesus overhears this conversation, and he turns to Jairus. He overhears it, and he turns to Jairus in Mark 5, 36, and he says, do not fear, only believe. This word belief is the same root word as the word faith that he just commended this woman. Jesus, his kingdom is crazy. It's so upside down. He takes this religious leader who was supposed to be the model for faith and spirituality, and he says, I want you to look to this woman and have faith like she did, this woman who nobody would have looked to for a model of spirituality. And so they go on to Jairus' house. There's mourners. All this stuff is going on. As opposed to the public display he made of healing this woman, he does this very privately. He doesn't want this to be manipulated into a health and wealth gospel. And so in Mark 5, 41, he takes this little girl by the hand, which, again, was something he wasn't supposed to do because she was unclean. This was a dead corpse. She's clearly dead. Jesus says she's not. She's only sleeping because he's talking from his lens, not from an earthly lens, but from an earthly lens, she is dead. There's mourners. She would have been considered unclean. And so he says to her, Talitha kum. We don't fully understand this phrase. It, Mark translates it for us. Little girl, I say to you, arise. And this little girl is a term of endearment, like honey. Or like, like I say to my girls when I get home from work and they come running, I'm like, hey, girls, how are you guys doing? It's so good to see you. I love y'all so much. It's this term of endearment. And he says to her, little girl, I say to you, arise. Get up. It's the same word you would use to wake up your kid from a nap. Jesus raises a girl from the clutches of death with the same amount of work we use to get kids up from sleep. This is what Jesus does, and what does she do? She obeys. And I love it, because the healing is complete. Mark tells us, she gets up and starts walking. So she's walking around, and then he says, I love this about Jesus, get her something to eat. She's hungry, she just came back from the dead. <laughs> get her something to eat. But Mark's highlighting that this is, this is a whole thing. She doesn't have to slowly get better. Like she's up, she's walking, this is a whole holistic healing. And Jairus' faith, just like the last woman we saw in this moment, is finally vindicated. Because the one in whom his faith was placed was trustworthy. I hope you're beginning to see that Jesus is a compassionate king who receives those who come to him, who restores holistically. He redeems us and he responds to our faith no matter how small or no matter how great he responds to our faith. And so now that we've kind of seen these two characters in this story, I want to spend a few minutes asking three questions really quickly. First of all, what does this story reveal about us as individuals? So you, in your life, in your moment where you're at. And secondly, what does this story reveal about God in Christ Jesus? And thirdly, what does this story reveal about the church and her mission? What does it reveal about the church collectively and her mission? So first, what does it reveal about us as individuals? 
I, I hope as we've entered into this story, you've maybe been able to see yourselves in one of the three characters we've seen. Sorry, one of the two characters. Maybe for you, you see yourself in the story of Jairus. This is my story. You've grown up religious. You can quote scripture. You know all the right things to say. You know systematic theology. You're considered as moral and upstanding in the community. You're one that culture would look to and say, man, they're really close to God. They're they're a model example of spirituality and faith. But if you're honest, you know better. You know yourself. You know that deep within that you're full of doubts and hurting. That your morals and your good deeds are helpless in the face of sickness, death, pain, and suffering. And that when those things came knocking on your door, you you had nowhere to turn. And the only scripture you found yourself quoting were ones that questioned God's goodness from the Psalms, not ones that affirmed it. You're not courageous. You know you're not full of faith in this strong model example. You know that your religion is powerless to save, to heal, to bring life from death. And if you've not gotten there and you're trusting in religion or your good deeds to save you, I pray that you see the emptiness of that so you can run to Jesus. Or maybe for you, you relate more closely to this woman with the discharge of blood. Maybe you seem and your life seems to be nameless. Maybe you don't know much about religion other than what you've caught from the culture around you. Maybe you've even been excluded from religious communities based on your social status, your disabilities, the color of your skin, your marriage status, or one of many other factors. And you've gone to philosophers of this age to try to tell you how to be whole, to try to tell you how to make things new, but it always comes up empty. It's almost like it's mocking you like these doctors did with this woman who said, yeah, we've got your healing. She tries it and it's empty and you're further and further discouraged. You know that you're powerless and without hope. No one needs to even convince you to be humbled because every day when you look in the mirror, you're staring at this mess of a life you've made full of shame. See, through these two very, very different characters, Man, woman, rich, poor, right? Different statuses in society. We learn that all of humanity, no matter what it looks like on the outside, every single human is broken and in need of healing. And it doesn't matter what culture says, that deep down we know that we need hope. Outside of ourselves, it doesn't matter whether we find ourselves in the four walls of a church building every Sunday morning or we find ourselves in a cheap motel room with used needles laying on the floor around us trying to escape our misery and brokenness. Everybody needs Jesus to come and do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And here's the good news that we learn from this story. That's exactly what Jesus came for. The most courageous thing you can do is quit placing faith in yourself or in the things of this age and to throw yourselves on the mercy of this Jesus, asking him to receive you, trusting him to redeem you. And he is a good and wise king who longs to bring you into his kingdom and not inside the back door, not just reluctantly because it's a transaction, but with shouts of celebration and killing the fatted calf and saying, come home, welcome in my son, welcome in my daughter. This takes us to our second question. What does this story reveal about God in Christ Jesus? See, in the face of Jesus, we get to see the exact imprint of God's nature. 
And the story shows us that this king is compassionate and powerful. He receives the most unlikely into his kingdom. Those that have been humbled by brokenness and finally stop turning to religion, or those who never had anywhere else to turn, and they throw themselves on the mercy of this king, and he receives them, and doesn't just receive them, he restores them to who they were created to be. He's creating a new humanity, a new people. This is huge, church. Like, we are a new people of God. He's making us completely whole, not less than physical, but so much more. Both these people, two different people, are welcomed into his kingdom. This new humanity is made up of the most unlikely people, and that's good news because that means that you and me are, are welcome here, right? This is amazing, and when we learn that God is quick to save even with imperfect faith. Neither of these characters had perfect faith. You don't have to fully understand what it means for him to have healing in his wings. The woman didn't understand the full scope and historical picture of what was going on with Jesus. You don't have to be religious. You don't have to be an insider. You just operate on what you know. Act on the faith you have and courageously respond to the message of this king and throw yourself on his mercy. See, here's the thing. Jesus is the one who had perfect courage and faith on your behalf. Jesus is the Savior, not you. He is the one who set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem, knowing that death awaited. He was the one who perfectly trusted his Father on the cross when he was stretched out and said, Father, into your hands I give you my spirit. He prays and then he dies, saying, I trust you, Father, with my life. I know that you will raise me again, even if it looks like all hope is lost. It's worth it to give everything you have. If it means losing every bit of status like Jairus and coming face to face with this king and embarrassingly throw yourself on his mercy, it's worth it. And if all you can do is crawl, ashamed, hiding, and hurting, to just touch the fringe of his garment with Jesus, that's enough too. This is the beauty of the gospel, that true healing awaits. And here's the thing we need to see. This woman that was healed of this disease, guess what? One day she was going to die. And this little girl who was 12 years old, though she was resurrected here, that she was going to die again. So Jesus isn't just about their physical healing. He comes to deal with death, sin, and brokenness completely. This is the gospel. This is the cross and resurrection. That Jesus was the one who, just like this woman, willingly became unclean, was cast outside the city like this woman had been, was left alone and forsaken by his father so this woman would never have to be. The flow of his blood is what brings ultimate healing. His being cast outside the kingdom is what allowed for us to be welcomed in as sons and daughters. This is a miracle, church. We shouldn't be here. But because of this Jesus, because of the cross, and because of the resurrection, the veil has been torn, and we have access to God, this holy God we just sang about. We have access to him, and he bends down his ear and gets on your level to hear you when you speak. That's incredible. It should blow our minds. Like, this is what Jesus is doing and he's not just doing it for you. He's doing it for the entire cosmos. He's beating death and sin and crushing the head of the serpent and making all things new. He's the truly faithful one. Thank God we don't have to have perfect faith. 
He is the truly faithful one, the trustworthy one. He is sufficient. And if we begin to grasp that, answers the question. Our third question, what does the story reveal about the church and its mission? If this is really true, church, this changes us. We can't stay the same in light of this king and what he does. We are the ones now who have been healed, who once were the outcast, who now go courageously run to the rooftops and welcome in the outcast, welcome in the broken, welcome in the religious. As long as you leave your religion at the door, you're here and come to Jesus. He is welcoming you into your kingdom. And so we are a community that embodies what Jesus embodied in this story. We welcome in the marginalized, the outcast, the poor. And when we do this, we live out parables of spiritual realities. We literally become the body of Christ on earth. The world's going to think we're foolish when we do this. Paul said, if not for the resurrection, we're of all men most to be pitied. You you should pity us if the resurrection isn't true. Because here's the thing, without the resurrection, what we're doing is stupid. Like it really is to spend your life for the sake of the gospel, to pour out, not knowing the result, and it doesn't always pan out. I could give you amazing stories of people pouring into people and giving their lives for the sake of the gospel and it panning out, but I can give you just as many. The ones we don't get to hear, the ones that don't make the videos, the ones that don't make the testimonials of when you pour out your life and you expend energy for the sake of the gospel and people throw that back in your face and walk away unchanged. We have to trust in this Jesus even when it doesn't look like it's gonna pan out. See, Jesus is the cornerstone of the new family of God, and he is the one who's promised to build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So even when it looks dark, even when it's as dark as it was when Jesus was laid in the grave, the resurrection awaits. And Jesus is just the first fruits. He was raised, but all others are going to follow him, and the entire cosmos is going to be raised. And so do we trust Jesus in this? Do we trust him to complete the task that he has called us to do? even when it hurts? How do we expect people to believe in a God who will draw near to them if we won't? And so together we ask, how do we take Jesus to a divided, angry, and hurting world? How do we go into dark places and give them eternal hope? I don't have the answer for you. You have to follow the Spirit. You as a church decide that. But together we go in the midst of a broken world and we display the kingdom of God and declare it that says there is a remedy for the brokenness. This king is sufficient to save. He will accomplish his mission. And so we draw near to this king because he has made himself known in the gospel. And we receive others in. And when they come looking for Jesus, give them what they're looking for. Nothing more and nothing less. So let's be encouraged, church. King Jesus is claiming his territory and he will not fail. Let us walk boldly with great faith into a lost and hurting world with the good news of this king because he is worthy of our faith. Let's pray together. Father, gosh, even as we pray to you, we come covered by the blood of Jesus. The fact that that we can speak in Knoxville, Tennessee, and you hear us is incredible. What a mind-blowing privilege that because of the work the life, death, burial, and resurrection of your son, you hear us. Like right now, you're hearing our cry. And so I pray for those in here who are hurting, those who are broken, those who feel like they have no place in the kingdom. They would understand that because of Jesus, they do. 
And maybe for the first time, they would throw themselves on your mercy and trust you for their salvation. And I pray for those of us that have been Christians for years. Maybe we need to be reawakened to this hope. Or maybe we've been just stagnant, that we would be We would see you afresh and we would be transformed by your beauty and your glory and your majesty. And we would become a people who take the gospel to the ends of the earth, from our neighborhoods all the way to the nations, for the sake of your kingdom. We love you, Jesus. We respond in worship to you through the taking of bread, through communion, and through the singing of songs. We love you, Jesus. Thank you that you love us. Amen. We're going to have an opportunity to take communion down now. Is that correct? So communion, um, it's an opportunity where I think we have tables in the back that are lit up. And so this is for Christians, those of you that are followers of Jesus. It's an opportunity to take the bread and take the juice. And this is a weekly reminder of what Jesus did for us, tangible. The, The bread represents the body of Jesus that was broken on the cross And the juice represents his blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And as we do this, we get to remember. Yes, we remember our brokenness and we mourn and we repent. But we also celebrate because Jesus has called us into his kingdom through his work. And we are welcome. And so we do this. Jesus said, do this until I come back. I am coming back. And so we do this again as a foretaste of when we get to sit with Jesus in the eternal kingdom eating for eternity, celebrating, building kingdoms for his name in worship for all of eternity. This is just a foretaste. And so let's take a moment and do this now. Again, there's tables in the back. Um, Love for you to take communion, and then we'll sing some songs together.
Smile. 